0: Philosophy departments, almost without exception, boycott Ayn Rand disciples, observes former Harvard University President Lawrence Summers. In an informal poll of the profession, 75% of respondents voted Rand as the person philosophers most wish the media would stop referring to as a philosopher. What explains professional philosophy's hostile dismissal of Ayn Rand? That's the question we'll be discussing on today's episode of New Ideal Live. My name is Mike Mazza. I'm an associate fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. Joining me today is ARI senior fellow, Ankar Ghatay. Hi, Ankar. Thanks for joining me. I'm Mike. I'd also like to welcome our listeners on Clubhouse uh, where we are simulcasting. When the main podcast is over, Ankar and I will be moving over to Clubhouse to continue the discussion, take some of your questions and engage you in conversation. Uh, So, (laughs) <laughs> to start our conversation today, um, if you ask some of the professors, uh, you know some of the professors that might have been polled in that informal poll I mentioned, why they have such hostility to Rand, uh, a common answer you'll get is just that she's not a good philosopher. She has poor arguments for her position. Um, they don't stand up to scrutiny. They'll point to some uh, crit- perhaps sympathetic criticisms of her some sympathetic philosophers who have looked at her work and found that found it to be of poor quality um, and conclude it's not worth engaging in. Part of their dismissal will probably include maybe a perfunctory reference to an argument or two in these criticisms. So <clears throat> today I wanna take a, a look at some of these, some of the more influential critiques of Rand or some of the more prominent critiques of Rand that have come from professional philosophers um, the first one I want to look at is, to my knowledge, the first public criticism of Rand by a professional philosopher. So, in uh, the early 1960s, Rand published her first uh, nonfiction book, um, the, For the New Intellectual, that includes excerpts of the speeches from her novels, as well as an original essay, uh, the essay for the The book was reviewed in the New York Times by the philosophy professor, Sidney Hook. This is uh, April 9th, 1961. The title of the review is "Man for Himself, if you want to look this up. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about Hook's review for a number of reasons. It's the first uh, major uh, criticism of her from a philosopher. The other is Hook actually had some connection to Rand. She was Peakoff's PhD, Leonard Picoff's the heir to Rand's estate and the uh, subjectivism, uh, foremost expert on objectivism. Um, I think he was also the advisor to some Rand's other uh, associates who were in graduate school at the time. And Hook's review in the times is Pretty negative, uh, to put it mildly. It's kind of simple. So I start us just by reading some uh, quotes from it. So he's reviewing a book uh, that she has out, and he's discussing uh, her use of some uh, ideas from Aristotle, and writes. Since his baptism in medieval times, Aristotle has served many strange purposes. None have been odder than this sactal alliance, so to speak, of Aristotle Aristotle with Adam Smith. The extraordinary virtue Rand finds in the law that A is A suggests that she is unaware uh, that logical principles by themselves can test only consistency. They cannot establish truth. And uh, he goes on, swearing fidelity to Aristotle and claims to deduce matters of logic, but with as little warrant, ethical rules and economic truths as well. As she ends them, the laws of logic license her in proclaiming that existence exists, which is very much like saying that the law of gravitation is heavy and the formula of sugar is sweet. So Ankar, just what's your uh, initial reaction to that? So imagine you're reading this review of C1, you've liked Atlas Shrugged, and you're interested in philosophy. And here's this eminent philosopher of the day uh, belittling this new, this new book.
1: Well, yeah, my reaction is it's so you put it's a negative review but then you just said it's belittling Ayn Rand. I think that's right. So my reaction, given that I respect Ayn Rand as a major philosophic thinker, it's a, I have a very negative reaction to this. And it, at, at one level, it's just not grasping what she's arguing. And then we can talk about why. I think it's not grasping what mm-hmm. she's arguing but it's treating the, so she definitely talks about the law of identity. She talks about axioms and the immediate translation of that is to, okay, And that, well, we know what an axiom is. An axiom is something from which you deduce other things. So she must be saying you can deduce everything from this axiom. And if in assuming he's read, for the new intellectual, the whole book. Now I hope he read it if he's giving a sort of review of it. So <laughs> yeah. assuming that, then he'll have got to Galt's speech and Atlas Shrugged and part of in that speech is that they're on strike in the name of a single axiom. And so it's then it's like there's one axiom from which you can deduce everything is I think part of what the translation in his mind. And it's, mm-hmm. well, you obviously can't do this And indeed, when we're talking about the law of identity, and this as a principle of reasoning and logic, you can't deduce anything from that in terms of content um, so that she's just very confused. And so this is part of the belittling. The tone of it is like I'm dealing with a teenager who doesn't really know yet how to grapple with these issues and thinks they have a solution to it, and they don't really even understand what the problems are. And what the right categories are, and things like mm-hmm. that. Now that it's that's not what she's doing. So it from that perspective, it's just getting her completely wrong. Now I think there's reasons why this is why this is the way that he's looking at it, and this is the way he processes what she's saying. To the extent that he's actually processing it versus not. Yeah, okay. I have to read it. I already know it's wrong. Um, So like giving him the benefit of the doubt that there's actually some thinking going on, not I've got to pre-arrive that conclusion and I'm just now going to cherry pick things so that I can maintain the conclusion that I have.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so maybe to help us understand, it'll be worth saying a thing or two just about what philosophers thought of Uh, You mentioned, you know, she's, she's got this one axiom. So what did they think of what they thought of logic, what they thought of axioms? Uh, At the time, this is 1961. And this is still, I think, uh, in the in the history of philosophy, it's still uh, fashionable, maybe that's not the right word, it's still uh, uncontroversial to think of logic as Uh, a convention or just a set of rules we kind of make up and they happen to work. Um, It's a fully formal thing. It's all epistemological. There's no um, metaphysical content to uh, logical principles. Um, Do you think that's relevant to how he's read? Like this is the framework he has and his only move is to try to apply it to uh, to Rand to understand her.
1: Yes, I think that is some of what is going on. It, it's in one of the ways that it would be put in some twentieth century philosophy is that there's a category mistake here. It's you're dealing with conventional rules at best, they think of logic as it's epistemological, as you said, that it's rules of inference that help us go um, to infer truths from other truths. So, but it the these principles don't have any metaphysical grounding. And that mm-hmm. to think that is just to misunderstand the whole subject, is their part of the point of view, I think, here. So it's that. She, the fact that she thinks the law of identity, that if A is A, but that, that's putting it in a very formula mathematical way, that a thing is itself, that it is what it is. She takes that to be referring to something in reality. It's a basic fact about reality. And our reasoning has to take that basic fact into account. And what logic mm-hmm. is, is a form of inference that's taking that basic fact into account. And so it's a perspective that logic flows out of our understanding of the nature of reality. We're devising a method for thinking based on certain fundamental facts about reality. And this, so she views, Ayn Rand views herself as in the Aristotelian tradition, because I think she thinks this is what Aristotle is doing. This is what he discovered. He's right about this. He's the father of logic because he understood that these principles of reasoning are the proper principles of reasoning because they have a grounding in a proper metaphysics. So I, I, I think she's right to re- regard herself as an Aristotelian. So part of what's interesting in Hook's uh Re- review or uh, what this part of it is that he thinks she's crazy or childish or something for thinking of herself in the Aristotelian tradition and that tells you something about his understanding or misunderstanding of the Aristotelian <laughs> tradition and that also is interesting in terms of thinking about why it is that he can't um it's not just that he disagrees with Ayn Rand. He thinks what she's doing is unsophisticated. And then there's a question of, well, what does sophistication consist of and what is then is unsophisticated? And I think there's a particular view here that's very provincial of what sophisticated means. So the
0: idea is sophisticated means what the way uh, we do things at NYU in 1961, or it it it? Do you mean something more like sophisticated? Is uh, we have this uh, philosophy of logic, and this is the you know the, this is the right way to look at these issues, and anything outside of that is um, old fashioned or old hat or.
1: Yeah, I think it's more the second. I mean, I've met people in the profession who it's it to so say it's provincial. It's very provincial. It would be yeah. This is what we do at NYU, or this is what we do at Harvard, and um, that mm-hmm. that's the standard for what counts as real philosophy, sophisticated philosophy. But here, I think it, it's broader. It's it's that it's what we in contemporary academic philosophy, and even that it means. Sort of anglo-american philosophy mm-hmm. so uh, academic departments in england and the united states and they might include a- australia and so but even not <laughs> with know, what yeah. happens in france or germany th- there there's a was a view i don't think hook would have it but there certainly was a view i mean this this view was when i was in graduate school in the 90s that yeah i mean people call it philosophy but we don't really think of what, what happens in the departments uh, and in Paris or in Berlin as really philosophy. Um, So, yeah, so sophisticated means using the approach and assuming the philosophical fundamentals that we think are true. If you don't have those, then what you're doing is not really sophisticated. And I think a real perspective on philosophy requires that you be able to entertain world views that reject the fundamentals that you think are right, and to really think about it. So it, they might have a view, which they I mean they did have the view, that logic is detached from any metaphysics, from any perspective on what the fundamental nature of reality is. But a real philosopher should know that's not true of the history of philosophy. There's other major thinkers who and Aristotle's here, the primary one who thinks that no logical principles come from a basic understanding or an understanding of certain fundamental facts about reality, including that a thing is itself, it is what it is, it is not what it is not. Um, and you get, I mean, this is a perspective that's emerging in with the ancient Greek philosophical thinking, and it's cemented and and by Aristotle and pushed forward and connected to reasoning and logic. And a real philosopher should know that, that there is this view and it's sophisticated. Like it should, you might in the end think it's wrong and some, but that you are unable to get that, that there's people who think that there's a different approach here. And someone like Ayn Rand might be arguing that, well, Aristotle's right about this and you guys are wrong. And he doesn't seem able to like go there mentally, to, to that. That's what yeah. she's doing.
0: He doesn't even entertain it as a possibility to, to dismiss. Um, okay, so yeah. I think we could we could talk about Hook, uh, uh, you know, his <laughs> a, a lot for a lot longer. But I think it, it'd be good to we want to survey a couple of these. Similar kind of uh, critiques, reactions. And the second one I wanted to look at is um, so so Hooks is a book review in The New York Times. So the audience is is not really other philosophers. It's, uh, I guess the, the public at large the intellectual public at large. Um, the next thing I want to look at is from the philosopher Robert Nozick, which he published in nineteen seventy one in a philosophy journal titled The Personalist. I don't think that journal exists uh, anymore. Uh, but he wrote this article on the Randian argument. It's a critique of mostly of the foundations of her ethics. It's written for philosophers. So it's not in, a, it's not in like a, a newspaper, it's in a, it's in a professional journal. Um, so for those of you who might not be familiar with Nozick, Nozick is at the time, I, I, well, at the time and throughout his career, he, he passed away in the uh, early uh, 2010s, I think. Um, he was a professor at Harvard. Uh, very influential for his book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, where he defends a kind of Lockean libertarian uh, individual rights conception of government so he's often seen as somebody who should be uh, sympathetic to Rand and in fact in this um, in this article in a footnote Nozick talks about how uh, how um, valuable he found how enjoyable he found Atlas Shrugged in the Fountainhead he he sees I think he genuinely sees himself as a sympathizer so it's not just that he's taken to be sympathetic he he's he's found value in her books and he has um, similar political views. Um, A lot of times this article is referred back to by, um, by, you know, by contemporary critics as, look, even somebody like Nozick who you'd think would be most likely to accept Rand's arguments if they were any good, he doesn't think they're any good. Um, And this is like, proof that there's that there's uh, nothing to her. So I want to talk about this article a little bit. Um, and the first thing I want to quote from Nozick is how he describes his approach to Rand's argument. He says, quote, I would most like to set out Rand's argument as a deductive argument and then examine the premises. Unfortunately." It is not clear to me exactly what the argument is. So we shall have to do some speculating about how steps might be filled in and look at these weights. So my first reaction to this is, well, the first problem is Rand doesn't intend to have a deductive argument here. It's not a, it's neither by intention or in actual fact is is she offering a deductive argument. So there's already something askew about what he's doing. And then the second sentence where he says, um, it's not clear to him what the argument is. And then if you go into the substance of the paper, you might expect him to um, try to reconstruct the argument by quoting passages or something, and then um, parsing, you know, parsing paragraphs. And so, well, maybe the argument's this, but that doesn't work. Doesn't really do any of that. He doesn't do any kind of scholarly attempt to figure out what Rand's argument is. He instead, um, I guess you could say, reconstructs something in her style that he thinks could be her argument, uh, and then he and then he knocks it down. Um, so, Ankar, do you are you on the same page as me so far? Uh, do you uh, agree with that, Ezra? initial response to what he's doing
1: yes and i would really highlight the that he wants to set it out as a deductive argument and notice that that there's something similar in the hook of what we talked about it was that to to read a little bit again it was Miss Rand claims to deduce not only matters of fact from logic and we were talking a bit about that that's like metaphysics from epistemology like that's the most charitable and it's just that's and then he says with as little warrant she's trying to deduce ethical rules and economic truths as well so he's got this picture like she's got this one axiom for here it's that a is a law of identity and it's she's going to deduce metaphysics and not only that she's going to deduce a whole moral system and a whole politics from that and Nozick too is looking at it as okay well let me put it in a deductive form and they seem o- oblivious to the idea that well maybe not all arguments are deductive like this and again for hook just putting it in the aristotelian tradition they hear axiom and all they think is well okay an axiom is for something from which i deduce it's like in math and they don't have a perspective but again like if you were reading aristotle and not reading him just to sort of every time he says something you agree with it's okay yeah he's confirming the way we think about things If you're really trying to get the way aristotle's looking at the world you have a perspective that an axiom is something you reason with but not from like it's not you've got an axiom mm-hmm. and you can get all the content out of it but you've got to use this axiom in all your reasoning and that's part of how he thinks about logic and so here it's yeah but aren't there also inductive arguments? why is he putting it so it's like simultaneously has a sense she's not offering a deductive argument but we in our academic journals whenever we make arguments we put them in a kind of deductive form so that's what like real scholarly philosophy looks like mm-hmm. so I as a sympathetic uh interpreter of Ayn Rand I'm going to put it in a deductive form and you're you're going to make all kinds of mistakes about just what she's arguing if you're doing that. It's similar. You're right. You're teaching a course right now, and part of what you're going to look at, you're looking at the origin of species from Darwin, and it's like you get some interpreter of Darwin saying, "Okay, I would like to put the origin of species in a deductive form of an argument, and it, like the whole thing's inductive, of about his observations and so on." And but yeah. I want to make it really scholarly. It you arrange everything in a deductive form, and you wouldn't understand what Darwin's doing if you did that.
0: Yeah, so just to, to give us more of a sense of uh, how Nozick is construing Rand's reasoning, I, I just wanna read some of, some of his, uh, you know, his uh, how does he put it? His speculations about how the steps might be filled in. So um, he's, trying to reconstruct an argument to the conclusion that, as he puts it, values have a purpose only for living things. So just as an initial thing, it, it does seem like he's trying to make contact with with views Rand actually has. It's just that he doesn't know how to understand her reasoning to them. So here's here's how he starts reconstructing The argument for the conclusion that values have a purpose only for living things. It says, one, only a living being is capable of choosing among alternative actions. Or two, only for a living being could there be any point to choosing among alternative actions. For three, only a living being can be injured, damaged, have its welfare diminished, etc. And it goes on and on like that and i mean if you're familiar with rand's writing and the argument in the relevant uh, essay um uh, the objectivist ethics already this just seems logically and stylistically like nothing like what you find in the in the essay um that there's these laid out premises that we're going to deduce a conclusion from um so what do we make though of the, the premises are not so radically off point from the sort of things she's saying. So premise number one, only a living being is capable of choosing among alternative actions. She does talk about living organisms facing a fundamental alternative of life or death. So there's some contact, but it's a contrived uh maybe not that's not the best word it's um superimposed on random points he's getting um he realizes that they have some relation to each other but he can't imagine what that relationship
1: might be and here i think part of what's going on is this is the the move from taking an induct uh, inductive argument that is replete with the observations and in in effect is she's asking you like isn't this what you observe about the nature and functioning of living things taking that and sort of I think Nozick often does this in his his whole form of reasoning. I think it's in Anarchy, State, and Utopia. You see this kind of thing in regard to rights. It's a similar thing here that it's putting it in deductive form. He's losing sight of what are the observations. So even if you could say in something like this is a premise of hers, it's coming from observations. And it should be just this first premise. There's enough in the objectivist ethics to get. No, this can't be right as a way, even if what I'm trying to do is restate the argument in a deductive form, it's not given in a deductive form, to restate it of, you put it, of what's in the objectivist ethics, is that living organisms face an alternative. Here, his translation of that is choose among alternatives. But she talks about plants in the objectivist. Does she really think a plant is choosing and it it, like if he's thinking about what she's actually bringing up and the observable phenomena he would have to think is she really saying that a plant a rose bush chooses to plunge its roots further in the soil to get water or and so is face an alternative really that you can translate that into choose um Mm -hmm. i mean it doesn't even have a consciousness and I think it's pretty clear in the objectivist ethics that she thinks of choice as pertaining to a consciousness. So the idea mm. that it would pertain to a plant, it just, but this, this is bringing in sort of the wealth of observations that she's referring to, the data that she's building the argument on. And when you translate it into a deductive form, often what you leave aside is the actual data and evidence that's what, that is at the heart of the argument. And I think you can just see that in the way he's reformulating things. The more he was was focused on what are the observations she's saying, she's made, you can make um, that it would be okay. This can't be a translation of the argument.
0: Hmm. So after uh, there's one one more little passage from from Nozick that I think we wanted to to mention. Uh, so after he discusses this you know this argument he. Had, he says might be her argument and then he, he knocks it down because it doesn't actually work as a deductive argument. Um, <clears throat> he says, one cannot reach the conclusion that life itself is a value merely by conjoining together many sentences containing the word value and life or alive and hoping that by some process of association and mixture, this new connection will arise. So this is this is despite the fact that he's kind of a sympathizer, or he's some in some way sympathetic to her. This is still a pretty uh, nasty comment, I think. Like she's just stringing words together. Like Rand's arguments aren't deductively sound they're not even really arguments, they're word salads. Um, So I have a hard time like reconciling this, uh, this level of contempt for her reasoning with on the other hand, what seems to be a genuine um, uh, sympathy he has for her, I mentioned the footnote where he uh, praises Atlas Shrugged in the Fountainhead. And he also goes out of his way to say, like, I consider like my, my professional view is that criticism is a form of praise and um, he wants to distance himself from people who are uh, people who are like haters of hers. He's, say, he's saying, I'm just a critic, this is my criticism, but This passage stands out to me as indicating something else is going on. Do you have any insight into into that?
1: To me, it indicates something else going on, but it indicates something going on in Nozick's mind. And so it tells you more about Nozick than it does about Ayn Rand. You put it as this is nasty. I think it's not meant to be nasty. Now I might be wrong about that but my reading of it, it's not meant to be na- it's it's damning but it's like unfortunately what I think is happening is this and it is a damning comment in saying but it's not meant to be nasty i think it's like it's sort of he's sad that this, this is like this is when i analyze it this is the conclusion i reach but i think this is exactly how someone who their whole form of reasoning is real reasoning is deductive. When they meet an inductive argument, I think this is their experience of an inductive argument because they're not really connected to all the observations that are generating the words as it's put like, it's sort of that you get a word salad, but that's, it is a word salad And I think if you read The Origin of the Species and you're not really thinking about and can't go there in effect, that here's the wealth of observations that Darwin's pointing to and asking you to think about and how do we conceptualize this? How do we put it into words? What are the principles? What's the causality here? How do we get a theory here that's making sense of these observations? But if you don't, if you jettison all the observations, then it's like there's a bunch of words and they're being associated and there's claimed there's some connection. And said, but where's the deduction that, how did you get deduce this from that? And so that's all, that's the only valid connection between the things. not what's the causal connections that you're inducing between these things. That whole reality is not there. And so this, that it's, that he experiences her argument as it's merely conjoining together many sentences containing the word value and life and alive, not she's pointing to plants. And how do you think about it? It has the word alive in it and, um, and hoping that by some process of association and mixture, this new connection will arise. That, it, like, that is how a person who the only valid form of argumentation is deductive, experiences inductive arguments. So it tells you something, but it doesn't tell you about how she's reasoning. It tells you something about how he's processing an inductive argument. Mm-hmm.
0: I think. Okay, I think we should talk about these last two examples, and then I want to kind of take stock of some of the some of the things that that have come up. So Nozick's writing for a philosophy journal for other philosophers. Um, I wanted to look at a few excerpts from. Uh, ethics textbooks, where Rand is discussed just to see how she's being uh, treated, treated there. Interestingly, uh, the first one we'll discuss is by James Rachel's in his book, The Elements of Moral Philosophy. So I'm citing the fourth edition. This is an, he's got this essay on egoism that's reprinted over and over again, uh, beginning, I think it was first published in the late 70s and it's still being republished. The, the most recent I found was, uh, there's a textbook by Schaefer Landau, uh, 2012, another one by Poiman who we'll discuss again in a, in a second, 2014. So it's old but recurring, it's this old but recurring criticism or critical article um, about, about Rand and he like nozick he tries to reconstruct her argument as a kind of in rachel's it's quasi deductive i'd say it's numbered premises but it, he's not really concerned with making it um if va- uh, valid according to like formal rules of logic the way the way maybe nozick is thinking about this so Rachel's um, reconstructs Rand's argument for ethical egoism as follows. He says, here's the reasoning. Premise one, a person has only one life to live. If we value the individual, then we must agree that his life is of supreme importance. Premise two, the ethics of altruism regards the life of the individual as something one must be ready to sacrifice for the good of others, there's a, uh, like a sub-conclusion here, the ethics of altruism does not take seriously the value of the human individual. Premise three, ethical egoism, which allows each person to view his or her own life as being of ultimate value, does take human individual, uh, the human individual seriously. In fact, it's the only philosophy that does. Therefore, we ought to accept ethical egoism. And Rachel's criticism of this is that Rand's, this alleged argument of Rand uh, assumes there's only two options, either accepting the ethics of altruism or uh, accepting the ethics of egoism. So I, I think there's a number of things to say about this. So what one is, I, I think we have to be um, a little more forgiving of Rachel's than maybe Nozick because Rachel's is writing in a textbook and what you're doing in a textbook is, so one it's for undergraduates, freshmen. So it's not the place to get into all the technical details. Um, Another is One of the things you might have as a goal is to just present um, an argument in the form that the students might be able to follow uh, for the conclusion. And then there's also the issue of, well, if some people read ran this way that in and of itself is is worth discussing in a in a kind of textbook context. That being said, I think the idea that Rand's primary argument for ethical egoism is a false dilemma mistake. That is, she's reasoning from two possible alternatives to one of them is completely alien to to her style of reasoning. I mean, it's again, it's trying to construe her in a kind of deductive sense. There's a false dilemma argument or exclusive When you have an argument with two options, either A or B, and you can eliminate one, you conclude the other, it's a very formulaic, deductive style of argument. And I think he's trying to put her in that kind of a box here.
1: Yeah. And it's so presumably he's read. So even if it's trying to simplify, get the bare bones of the argument for a textbook for undergraduate. If you're writing a textbook, you as the author have to read more than what you're giving the students, have to have more of an understanding of it. You have to know in what ways you're simplifying and know, yeah, the, like if I was giving the full argument to an advanced undergraduate or graduate class, there's more to say. And it, there's elements that I've left out that if you're really capturing the full argument, you would have to bring in. And so so you're assuming that he's done that work. And you can't have read The Virtue of Selfishness or just some of the essays in it, The Objectivist Ethics, which typically they've read and they're making some kind of reference to The Ethics of Emergencies. We'll go on to talk a little bit about that. And a few of the others, uh, Collectivized Ethics in the Virtue of Selfishness. You've read Mm -hmm. them and if you've read those, you can't take from them that Ayn Rand thinks that like there's two options, either everyone's fully an altruist or everyone's fully an egoist. And those are the only two alternatives in morality. I mean, you can't read the start of the objectivist ethics and not get, no, she knows there's a whole field. She's known such a thing There's a religious ethics, which is not the same as altruism, mm-hmm. though there's connections to it. And so, so either that those are the theoretical alternatives or that in practice, there's not people who aren't partially altruistic, partially not, partially they don't accept it, partially they do. She's well aware of that. She argues indeed that that is what usually happens with altruism, that you can't fully accept it, fully practice it. So you're partially doing it, partially not, feeling guilty when you don't do it. And so she's aware of these phenomena and you can't read her like someone... Who's as knowledgeable or and and is a professional intellectual can't read and get okay that yeah, she doesn't have this view. So this is not valid simplification of her view. <laughs> and more than that, the what you also see here, I think, is uh, that th- there's a mindset that can't think that someone might be operating with different categories and different fundamentals than what we think of and whatever the we is it can be very narrow like we at NYU we in the Anglo-Saxon philosophical world or we as professional philosophers is would say that these are the categories so the first premise or kind of first step in the argument that he puts it's If we value the individual, that is if the individual has moral worth, what like who's the we valuing the individual? What individuals? What does it mean that individual has moral worth? Moral worth to whom? To God? And this is, I mean, in objectivism, this would be the perspective. This is a very intrinsicist perspective, but just in terms of what they're responding to, What she argues at the start of the objectivist ethics is that When we talk about values, there's an implicit question embedded in the very concept of value that people don't recognize and all too often. um, ignore and that's a value to whom and she stresses this at the start that something's gone wrong in ethics because of value, when we talk about values, you have to ask the question of value to whom? And that question is so often not asked. And here he just, bring, there's the val- we value the individual, if the individual has moral worth. moral worth to whom? And a real philosopher should be able to get, like she would challenge this way of putting things because you're not asking the question that she says you have to ask if you think, to, to think properly about morality. But it's just, well, but these are our categories and we already know they're the right categories. So there's a way of you're um, trying to put a, uh, um, what 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 is the expression, a, a circular thing into a square, a peg into a square hole into, and it just, you can't do it. And that's part of what is often going on. I think it's it's the same, like you've got an inductive argument I don't deal with inductive arguments. So let me put it in a deductive form because that's the category that I operate with. And But you can't understand what someone else is doing if that's how, what you're doing. And a, a philosopher should not do that. Well,
0: so maybe then um, I'm looking at our, how much time we have left. I think it may, might make most sense to talk about Something that's been just below the the surface in in a lot of what what we've been saying is not You just said a philosopher should be able to see see these things, and we've talked about uh, the kind of paroch- parochialism in some of the criticisms. Um, the like hook doesn't have this perspective that there can be other. Uh, There can be challenges to the things he takes as fundamentals and there's a could be alternative worldviews with different fundamentals. What's going on here, it seems like there's a sense in which these people come some of the figures we've talked about are not exactly philosophical in their thinking about Rand's philosophy. Um, It seems there's something, something's gone wrong at a deeper level just than, well, they've misrepresented her argument. They didn't, uh, you know, they didn't read the text carefully enough to see that, uh, to see that she says, um, you know, plants face an alternative. She doesn't use the word choice. There's some, there's some bigger problem here. So we've talked a little about this before the podcast. Um Ankar, you basically told me you don't think they're being philosophical. Uh, do you want to elaborate yeah. on on that for the for the listeners? It, yes,
1: so what I think of the, the subject of philosophy, and so what a philosopher does and does or should do what the profession is, and particularly if you're a teacher of these things, and here, one of the things from James Rachel, we're talking about a textbook. So this is meant as instruction. Um, A philosophy is a worldview. And the subject is there's different worldviews. There's reasons for why different worldviews have been advanced and argued that this is the right worldview, this is the worldview one should adopt if you're thinking rationally, if you're thinking logically. And philosophy then is, you're entertaining different worldviews and you have to really be able to enter them. So you have to be able to think, okay, like there's reasons for why someone would think these are the fundamentals. And then a worldview has to be constructed in accordance with and always with an eye on these fundamentals. And if you reject those fundamentals, and you think other ones are correct, and there's reasons why you might and there's arguments for that, then the whole world looks very different. And what proper reasoning and improper reasoning is looks different. Whether you can base epistemological things on metaphysics or not, that will be different depending on your worldview. And so, and a philosopher should be able to do this. I think this is one of the reasons every philosopher should have some real understanding of the history of philosophy. They don't have to be a historian of philosophy, but they have some understanding because what you do when, if you're really reading Aristotle and taking it seriously. But the same with Plato, say, is you're trying to enter that worldview and see, okay, Plato thinks there's certain fundamentals. And then the world, including morality and politics looks a certain way, like if those fundamentals are correct, then if we're gonna have a worldview that's taking those fundamentals seriously, this is what it looks like. Aristotle rejects Plato's fundamentals, he doesn't think there's two dimensions, and that in terms of reasoning, we're oriented to another dimension and so on. Plato's wrong about the fundamentals. Aristotle proposes different fundamentals and then his whole worldview is very unlike Plato's. And you should be able to see that and enter that. And then take, even when you get a contemporary figure and some a contemporary figure who's telling you, I'm in the Aristotelian tradition, you should understand okay so there's certain ways that she's looking at things she thinks about the fundamentals in a certain way and so and yeah that might be different than how we look at it now but you should be able to take it on its own terms and understand okay that's what's going on and i need to understand that and she's giving certain new reasons for why aristotle's fundamentals are right um and if you can't do that, you don't warrant the title of a philosopher. You might be a, a academic in a philosophy department, you might have a philosophy degree and so on, but you're not philosophical. And my experience in graduate school was, and this is being generous, I'd say 20% of the people that I met in the, in the who are in academic philosophy departments, and I'm dealing with the Anglo-Saxon UK, America, world, Canada, America, world, 20% were philosophical and 80% were like this, that they can't really entertain any worldview other than the one that they've absorbed in, um, in their studies. And, and that's like from their contemporary teachers and so on. And they can't really understand anything other than that.
0: Okay, so as a as a close out, let's I want to return to um, the dismissal of Rand by the profession. so in a to give a modest defense of some of the people we've been discussing, they at least think she's worth addressing in some fashion or another in print um, this Poll I cited at the beginning of the podcast: seventy-five percent of respondents um, think the media should stop referring to her as, her as a philosopher. Now, that's a different group of people. They don't even want to um, want to address her or acknowledge her as somebody worth um, worth worth commentary. Um, when I was surveying some of the textbooks in uh, ethics and intro to philosophy. I found a lot that talk about Rand, but I found way more that maybe she gets a dismissive footnote at at most. So I want to raise the question of what's driving this extreme level of dismissiveness towards her um, it it can't just be that she has um uh in alien to them uh, worldview. I mean, there's, there are uh, classes in history of philosophy and um, there are, uh, we mentioned the figures in the continental uh, departments. Those people still have jobs. They're not being boycotted by, uh, by most philosophy departments. Um, So I, I have a few thoughts about what's driving the the kind of boycott Rand attitude as opposed to just the un, un, uh, uncharitably criticize her uh, attitude. I, I think it's basically uh, two and a half things. So one is, it's the intersection of two and a half things. So one is she's a complete outsider. She's not a professor. She's not a PhD. She's not an academic. So if you compare her uh, to no- Robert Nozick, Robert Nozick was a uh, libertarian uh, political theorist. He had a job at Harvard, um, so he wasn't uh, boycotted. But on the other hand, if you read his autobiography, he his, his, some autobiographical interviews he's given, he talks about being a pariah in his department. Um, so it's the intersection of her, I think, her political views and her being an outsider. So occasionally you'll hear people say, "Well, it's it's not the philosophy departments aren't so broken that they'd include a good philosopher who has the you know the wrong political views." Look at Nozick, but Nozick says he's a pariah in the profession. Um, so I think it's the intersection of those two things, and the the half is that she's an egoist. Um, she gives a moral defense of capitalism, and the moral part is, is uh, egoism. I, I think that's less important than one might otherwise think. Ankar, um, I know when I talked to you about this earlier, you wanted me to interpret my half in a certain, in a certain light. Uh, do you want to? You could probably say that. Yeah,
1: that one has to see it as really connected to the politics. So you said Nozick reported himself as being a pariah in the profession. And that's particularly when anarchy state and utopia is front and center. Like if you ask Robert Nozick, the first thing that will come to mind I think in the 70s for people, after Anarchy, State, and Utopia comes up, he's the author of Anarchy, State, and Utopia. And that's the his work in political, philosopher, uh, political philosophy. After he does other work in other areas and comes up with other books that are dealing with some epistemological questions and so on. And there, I think it's people take it, yeah, like this is more like real philosophy than that we can engage with and so on. So he's particularly a pariah as you're saying for his political position and arguments and views. And he says that, and my experience again of graduate school in the nineties is that's sort of how he was treated. And I took classes where, I mean, there's many classes that are structured like this Like it's Rawls and Nozick. And these are two people at Harvard and Rawls is a theory of justice. He's the egalitarian. And Nozick is in part, it's a critique of, like an explicit critique of parts of Rawls. And so we're gonna deal with this and so on, but it's still, everybody's sympathetic to Rawls and Nozick, yeah, he he goes wrong. Let's look at how exactly he goes off the rails sort of thing. So I believe him when he says he became a pariah for anarchy state and utopia, but for his other work, he's more respected I think And that includes in morality. So I think what you get with Ayn Rand, it's you get a politics that's even more on the pro-capitalism than knows it, I think. And Ayn Rand's deliberately working to revive the term capitalism. It's not limited government. It's not a night watchman state. It's laissez-faire capitalism. That's what she's in support of. So even in politics, I think she's more radical than Nozick is, but then what she says is, um, and you need to understand that it's a whole different moral approach that led to capitalism and that's necessary to defend it. That you, it's about the pursuit of happiness, It's it's selfishness properly understood or egoism properly understood. And Nozick, my view of Nozick is that morally, he's more, much more conventional. He's much more in the mainstream of philosophy. So he's less of a challenging, radical figure in that regard. So the two and a half, it's it's true that they will talk about some other egoists and, and bring them, down, and they might have Nietzsche or they might have Hobbes. And look, we do talk about this. And it's not like if someone talks about egoism, they're a pariah in our profession and so on. But the combination that she's pro capitalism, and says, it's part of the issue is that we're all wrong or looking at it from her as an outsider, you guys are all wrong about the nature of morality. That is a double kind of radical outside perspective that I think is threatening. And so there's a way in which she's, they rightly see that she's much more radical than Nozick is. And if you're going to make Nozick a pariah, what's going to happen to Ayn Rand? Yeah.
0: Okay, so on that note, I think we're nearing the end of our time. I do want to raise two, uh, we got some super chat questions. So I think we should answer them uh, and then uh, log off off the podcast. So the first question is a question about egoism. Uh, What do you think of terms like rational, parasitic, and predatory egoism to differentiate between different kinds of what one might call uh, egoism. So My view is that I would, I would not uh, uh, buy into that way of classifying different like, kinds of egoism. For part of the reason is if, you, if by rational egoism, you want that term to refer to Rand's ethics or something very close. I mean, part of what she's saying is that parasit, um, parasitic and predatory egoism aren't actually in your self-interest. They're, they're in different ways, uh, self-destructive. So I, I think adopting this kind of you, you might do it to describe somebody else's view but i wouldn't i wouldn't adopt this as like my categorization of different kinds of ways of being self interested i i don't i don't uh, i don't i don't think that would be the right way to categorize it.
1: yeah i th- i think that that distinction you're making is an important one so that if you're trying to classify different thinkers and approaches in philosophy i mean that, that includes the history of philosophy and you're saying like this is an egoistic theory it, that in some sense what it's saying is a either the goal or at least a primary goal in morality is the pursuit of your advantage self-interest something like that then it's um you can say, yeah, so there's something like that, what that's theory is saying, and it's saying that um, preying on other people is compatible with, and maybe even necessary to pursue your advantage and so on. But if you're thinking of that at from the perspective of what in reality, gen, if anything, generates egoism as thinking of this is the proper approach. It's you, what happens there is not okay, you figure out that egoism is the proper approach, but and then it's like there's a different forms. It could be predatory, parasitic, rational. And so and which one is the best of these? That's not at all what happens. And so if you read the objectivist ethics, it's she says it's about self-interest. And of course that means rational self-interest, because if you understand the whole argument for why um self-interest or the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of your own life is the fundamental goal in morality. It's part of the whole understanding of that is that reason is the means by which a human being pursues their self-interest. So so there can't be like an irrational form of this pursuit because then you're not actually pursuing your interest. So there's a difference between thinking of it in terms of looking at reality, what leads to the idea of egoism versus classifying different theories, some of which are wrong and radically wrong.
0: Okay, our other super chat uh, is actually a comment, not a question. Uh, Someone who went to the same philosophy program that you do on says, uh, they agree with you.
1: Yeah, yeah, but, but it's, so I, went, I did yeah. my graduate studies at the University of Calgary. I did my undergraduate studies at University of Toronto, which is a much bigger department. And then as mm-hmm. any um, person in philosophy, it's you don't only deal with people from your department that you're in. You're reading stuff by contemporary people. And so on. and so when I say that my classification that about like and I think it's a generous cl- putting the percentages like this, like 20 percent of the people are philosophical. And 80% aren't. It's not just a comment about the University of Calgary or something like that. That's my impression of the profession at the time. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's broader. Yeah, I, I
0: don't know. I don't know. I don't know, any, I don't know any numbers to give, but that's my general impression too. Is it and I've I found the people that are the most philosophical and philosophically interesting to me are the ones who had a phase in their career where they were doing history of philosophy. Maybe they wrote a dissertation on Plato or Aristotle or something, and now they're doing ethics or just contemporary ethics. Those those are the most interesting people to me in the profession. I don't think that's an accident. Um, Okay. So I I think we're at our time for the day. And we'll get, uh, in a few moments, transition over to Clubhouse to continue our conversation. We've been simulcasting uh, this podcast also in our Ayn Rand Club on Clubhouse. So join us to ask any additional questions you might have uh, or just to talk with us about about the topic of the day. Um, There's a few leftover questions we didn't get to answer. We'll try to take them up in uh, in the Clubhouse session. So if you were hoping to get your question answered and you didn't, um, just join us there and we'll get on that. And we have a few resources to recommend relevant to today's discussion. So the introduction to A Companion to Iron Rand by Gregory Salmieri has some interesting things to say about what it looks like or would look like to take Rand seriously as a critic and also as a sympathizer. I think that's, uh, if you haven't read that, worth reading. It's available free at the link bit.ly-companion2rand. The introduction is available online. <clears throat> the rest of the book isn't, uh, isn't free, just the introduction. And we also recommend some essays from the book Foundations of a Free Society, edited by Greg Zalmieri and uh, Robert Mayhew. The first is the essay Ayn Rand's Theory of Rights by Fred Miller and Adam Masseff who discuss uh, some of the arguments Nozick uh, offers in the uh, essay we discussed today. Ankar has a chapter in the same book, Rand Contra Nozick on individual rights and the emergence and justification of government. That's uh, not directly on what we're talking about today, but is definitely relevant if you're interested in uh, in Nozick and and Rand. If you, oh, uh, Sorry, one more. Um, Additionally, uh, Harry Binswanger, a philosopher, associate of Ayn Rand's and ARI board member, wrote a letter to Robert Nozick responding to his essay on the Randian argument and they had a brief telephone uh, conversation. Uh, You can read about uh, about the uh, essay. You can read about that at bit.ly-letter to Nozick and uh, the whole letters there as well as Harry's recounting of the of the conversation they had next time on new ideal live we will have a discussion of Alex Epstein's new book his powerful argument for more fossil fuel energy you can join us to uh, hear that discussion next Wednesday June 1st at uh, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube and click the bell to get notifications for when we go live or post new recordings. If you're watching the recording, please like, comment on, or share the link to help attract new viewers to the channel. Please consider doing the same if you're watching on Facebook. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, or have suggestions for future episodes, please email us at newideal at We read all of your emails. We reply to many of them. We even uh, do take suggestions for episodes. So if you have a suggestion, please send it to us. Thanks again, Ankar, for joining me. We'll see you all next week. And Ankar and I will talk to you soon on Clubhouse. Thanks. Thanks You've been listening to New Ideal,